Well, hello everyone. This is Carrie Beck with Homeschool Superheroes and How to Homeschool My Child. And we are going to be talking today about language here with Andrew Pudua from IEW. Welcome, Andrew. Glad you're here. Hi, Carrie. Good to be with you again. So um, before we dive into our topic today, cultivate language talents from preschool through high school, um, why don't you just tell people a little bit about themselves in case they haven't been with us before? Sure. Well, uh, yeah, Andrew Pudua, I'm homeschool dad of seven grown children, and I have 15 grandchildren. The number just went up, and uh, it is by far the only really good thing about getting old is <laughs> grandchildren. Um, but uh, I've been uh, traveling and speaking on the homeschool convention circuit for many years. I have a little company called the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Some people know it as IEW, and uh, we publish materials to cultivate the arts of language um, in uh, students. Uh, we do work with some schools, uh, charter schools and private schools mostly, uh, as well as uh, larger homeschooling support groups like classical conversations and whatnot. And then, of course, uh, lots and lots of individual homeschoolers. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, I'm very happy to be with you. Oh, well, Carrie, in Texas, we we in Oklahoma just secretly wish we could be part of Texas, but you know, maybe someday we'll see. Well, I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, this is pretty deep down in my soul, I think, and so. We loved, we lived in Idaho for a few years. And the first year we were driving home for Christmas. And as we crossed that Texas line, I know the rest of my family thought I was crazy. I was like, oh, we're back in Texas. <laughs> so yeah, Texan at heart here. So, well, today we're gonna talk about cultivating language talents at all different age levels. So what are some of the language abilities that most parents hope to cultivate in their children? Well. You know, you, you taught in schools, as did I, and there's this term language arts that is oh, universal. Yeah. And I never, ever liked this term language arts. And it's interesting, I was having a conversation actually with the superintendent of a school district in Washington state, a very intelligent guy. He brought me in to work with his teachers. They had a uh, a home learning support side in their school district. And I mentioned in conversation, I don't like the term language arts because it, it evokes a lot of like ugly stuff all at once. As soon as you say it, people start thinking, okay, um, phonics and reading and sight words and reading comprehension and handwriting and grammar and composition and maybe public speaking and literary analysis and you know the list goes on and on and so it can be easy to get overwhelmed as well as i think have a slightly disordered idea that somehow all those things are different things that you have to teach and so what he said to me was i said i don't like the term language arts he said that's because you don't know what they are oh so, okay, I took a little humble pill. I said, all right, what are they? And he said, well, in a more classical sense, there's only four of them. They're listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And immediately I liked that. And then he pointed out something that I had been starting to figure out, but couldn't articulate quite so well yet. And that is that the latter two, reading and writing, are 
dependent upon, predicated upon listening and speaking. So that if your listening and speaking skills are strong, teaching, reading, and writing is much easier. If they are not, it is much, much harder. And then he said, the most insightful thing I have ever heard from a public school administrator or teacher, he said, one of our problems in schools is that we give short shrift to listening and speaking. We focus all our attention on reading and writing because we test those, but we don't assess listening and speaking. So we don't teach them well. And I just thought, whoa, that is so powerful. In fact, <clears throat> that idea started to percolate and develop in my mind. And uh, years later, when we kind of redid the logo for our company, we put a little tagline on. So it's IEW, you know, listen, speak, read, write, think. In fact, I'm sitting in the conference room in yes. our office. And one year for uh, my birthday, my um, right hand help, uh, Julie, bought these uh, four pictures for me. And so you see the, the listen, and then below is speak, and then read, and then the little girl in the corner writing, thinking, oh no, the one in the middle with the coffee cup and the notebook writing, and then the little girl hmm, thinking. And so this is, you know, something that has really directed uh, our whole development of where we go with curriculum and all that. So what I like to do is share with parents ideas for cultivating listening skills, speaking skills, reading skills, writing skills at all different age ranges like preschool, elementary, um, or I guess primary. So be preschool would be like three to five years old, primary grades, we think K-1-2, uh, kids about five to seven, eight years old, and then elementary, grade three to five or so, middle school and high school. So if we if we talk fast, uh, we should be able to get through those five stages and touch on some very concrete things that parents can do. Um, one, one thing I like to point out, just because I made a statement, but I want to support it a little bit, how are listening and speaking related to reading and writing. Okay, when you think about it, your whole vocabulary as a child is developed through listening, mm -hmm. right? And when you go to say a word or read a word or write a word, you are limited in what you can say or read or write by what you already have learned. So if you don't already know words, you can't really use them. And until you know, you're know you quite advanced in this sequence, probably middle school or beyond, the hearing of words is the way you grow your vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could expand that out to complex syntax, to complex sentence patterns. Uh, some people you know, read a long sentence and then they don't really know what it says. Why? Well, they didn't necessarily have exposure to that type of complexity of language auditorily in order to comprehend and understand and build that database of language that then allows better reading comprehension. So uh, that's one example. Another would be speaking. Okay, when you write something, Carrie, you write, you love to write. You write a lot more than I do. 
I don't know. <laughs> what, what are you doing when you write? Well, you have an idea and then you basically say it to yourself, right? You, you talk to yourself and then, so you speak and then you hear what you heard yourself say to yourself. And then you hold that idea in your memory in words long enough to be able to get it on a screen or get it on paper. So for young children, they have to go through that same process. Find an idea, speak it into existence, hear what they heard themselves say, remember what they heard themselves say to themselves, and hold it long enough to then write the first word in the sequence and the second word in the sequence and the third word in the sequence. And they may have to stop for a moment, go over to the spelling part of their brain, remember how to spell a word, bring that information back into the process while still remembering the whole idea they were trying to write. And then once they've got that, go find the next idea in the sequence. Insanely complicated. And so that speaking and listening are so critical to understanding what you're reading as well as being able to uh, record those ideas in some way that's transmissible. So the, the integrated interaction, I could go on and on, but I think that gives you a, a taste of why they're so interdependent and why cultivating those skills is essential for later on advanced, you know, academic or advanced academic function. I thank you for explaining what you just did about the process between thinking and speaking and hearing and writing, because I hope that would encourage homeschool moms to have some patience with their children, especially when they're learning a concept for the first time. I always say, go read a book on your level and do this activity on an adult level, but then you'll, you'll have a little more patience because your kids are struggling. They have never learned that or I don't know about you with your grandkids, but we've got a two-year-old and her her word vocabulary is increasing a lot, although we don't understand what lots of it is. But now she's slowly putting a few words together in sentences. And what you just said, just uh, it's interesting to watch now when I don't have them all the time to be able to see what's going on in their little mind. So we talked about practical activities. So we'll see how many we can get through, you know, you've talked about this goal. What are some environments and activities that um, would accelerate the development of language skills for young students? Yeah, so if you think about the word listen, uh, we have another word here, right? Hearing, listening. Mm -hmm. They're almost synonymous, but not quite. Hearing is accidental. You always hear, you can't not hear. Unless you're deaf or have an, a hearing impairment, or you plug your ears, you're going to hear all the time anyway. But when we say listen, it's more of an active or transitive verb. You listen for something. You listen to something. There's a purpose. So one of the things I strongly recommend, uh, and, and this is a little ironic, but I believe the most important thing you can do for young children in cultivating good listening skills that carry into language development is focused listening of music. Oh, yeah. and, and the reason is that language is all tonal. If I'm speaking a language that you don't understand, you wouldn't be hearing language. You'd be hearing tones, short tones, long tones, going up, going down tones, 
uh, soft tones, louder tones, harsh tones, right? You'd be hearing all these different tones. And then through the repetition of tonal patterns, you would start to identify uh, a tonal pattern connected with a concept, like an idea. Like I say a certain thing enough times and point to this, pretty soon you get the idea that whatever I said is this thing. And so that's how children start to attach meaning. But, and it, it's a long thing, I could get into it, but we don't have time. But essentially children have to move from the world of vibration where everything is just noise with no meaning into the world of tone that has meaning. So the jingle of car keys means something to a baby, right? The opening of the door means something. Uh, a ring on a phone has meaning, but those are just tones, but they have meaning. Then that sensitivity to tones develops a sensitivity to words and it's a finer discrimination. And then that opens the door to vocabulary. Vocabulary opens the door to thinking. So when I say focus listening to music, I don't mean just have music on in the environment. One of the things I would like to do like an entire hour of teaching people how to do is get a small piece of good or great music. And you don't have to know a lot, just any composer you can name that starts with a B or an M like Bach or, <laughs> or Mozart or Handel, right? And just go get two minutes of beautiful music by a great composer and then play that two minutes, maybe three times a day for five or six or seven days a week. And so that child will hear that same little section of music, uh, maybe 15 to 21 times. And what happens is the child will memorize the patterns. They will become more and more familiar with those patterns. They're more and more comfortable. And then they will start to differentiate within those patterns, more refined perception. Also, what happens is it's joyful because mm -hmm. what happens with children in repetition is they have an expectation of what's going to happen through repetition. And when that expectation is fulfilled, there is this kind of explosion of joy. Um, this happens to us too. We can go to a movie we've seen before and still laugh or cry or be satisfied when the ending happens, even though we knew what was going to happen. <laughs> children and storybooks what you read to your grandchildren why are they willing to listen to the same blasted story <laughs> three times in one day because they anticipate and the fulfillment of anticipation brings them joy it's a liturgical idea it's this consummation that happens so we start with music and then we move into of course picture books and reading out loud picture books to children is the most important thing you can ever do in any given day. Then what happens is uh, you give them opportunity to tell back. So if they listen to music, what did you hear? You read a story, what did you hear? You take a little trip, what did you see? What do you remember? And you get them to just get this habit of narrating back. Charlotte Mason talks about this in, in her home education series that young children all the way up till you know, 11, 12 or beyond, this habit of speaking semi-formally what you have experienced grows those neural synapses and creates a fluency and an ease with using the vocabulary that you've come. So a word comes into your mind through your ears, then it exists as passive vocabulary. 
when you attempt to use that word, then it moves into active vocabulary. And of course, that's what you're going to need later on when you want to write something down. So uh, speaking through narration and then allowing children to memorize simple poems. You know, we've lost the nursery rhyme culture, um, but for hundreds, thousands of years, parents have been teaching their children little poetic ditties or songs or sayings or Bible verses, even at four and five years old. Of course, it's that age when they have that absorbent mind and they're learning everything as fast as they ever will. And so those memorized language patterns also contribute to the cultivation of speaking skills, moving words into the mind and into the active vocabulary. Um, reading and writing, you don't worry too much about teaching a four-year-old to read. Um, I do think we do a huge disservice to children in this country by forcing them to read at increasingly younger ages. And the problem is, is that not all five-year-olds are ready to read. So when you get a kindergarten curriculum and it says your kid must read, um, whether it's a public school or a homeschool imitating that, if the child is not neurologically ready to read and you try to force them to do it, what happens? They start to hate reading. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a big problem to undo their resistance, their dislike of the idea, their unwillingness to try. It would be far better to just wait till a child is eight or nine years old and, and wants to read and then teach them than to try and teach it too early. But what we've seen is in the, in the school system, you know, oh no, if kids aren't reading well in third grade, the solution is to push it earlier and earlier and earlier. And now literally you see pre-K reading programs. This is an evil thing that should not ever yes. exist in a compulsory way. Now, if you have a four-year-old who's curious and ask you, what is that? Okay, fine, teach them to read if they're ready, but wait for the readiness and don't have anxiety. You know, fortunately, uh, and we've talked about this, you and I have, I have a child who didn't read anything till he was almost 11 years old and didn't read a book of any sort until he was 12 years old. Why? He is so profoundly dyslexic. There's just no chance it was ever going to happen. Fortunately, I knew this, so I didn't stress about it. So that's one of the most important things that I try to share with parents is do not stress about the age at which children learn to read whether it's five or 15, it really doesn't matter. And the danger is forcing a child too young. Writing, of course, you know, children around four or five years old, generally, sometimes younger, sometimes not, they wanna pick up, you know, a pencil or a pen or a crayon, hopefully not a Sharpie marker, and <laughs> try to, you know, imitate the adults in the world around them, writing on paper, drawing pictures, and the thing I would say there is, you know, don't, don't force them into trying to write letters before they're interested in doing so, but do help them learn to hold the pencil properly because that attention to holding the utensil, whatever it is, will carry over to an easier writing once they start doing more writing on paper in the later grades. So that's kind of the overview of some specifics I recommend for preschool age children. That's awesome. And I appreciate you saying don't worry about when they start to read. We had a friend whose mom um, was like you and her. She's a public school teacher in her lifetime before he didn't start to read till he was 10. 
But once he did, he surpassed reading in my own son, even though Hunter knew how to read. So give yourself grace, give your kids grace. So thank you for encouraging that. Well, what about um, like the primary elementary ages? What yeah, so a lot of things are the same. I would continue with focused listening to music, only you know expand the selections to you know longer selections. Keep the same idea of you know one piece of music several times a day for a week, and then you you gradually rotate through. You can include the stories of composers or trivia about those pieces of music if you have it. Even if you don't have it, it's not that important. Um, I do strongly stress the importance of minimizing screen-based entertainment technology. Now, I'm not opposed to all technology and everything that happens on screens, but what happens for children is with screen-based entertainment technology, they become visually hyper-stimulated and they start to tune out to the auditory environment around them. And so it's actually far better from a language development point of view that a child is playing with dolls or Legos or blocks or something that would engage them rather than watching some kind of you know animated uh, thing on a screen uh, because you know there's imagination, there's attentiveness, there's um, creativity involved. And there's actually internal dialogues. Children talk to themselves when they are playing with toys much, much more and differently than when they are watching something. So minimizing screen-based technology, in my view, um, for younger children, you know, you know, even into the elementary grades, is one of the most important things you can do to cultivate good language skills. Um, obviously, children in the elementary, uh, you know, the, the primary and elementary, uh, they're able to memorize longer um, and, and more sophisticated poetry. Um, if you're of a religious tradition where memorized prayers are something that you can incorporate, this is very, very good for children to learn, you know, even the basic, you know, Lord's Prayer. Uh, and if there are others, now I lay me down to sleep. And I, you know, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious home, but my mother did, I think just out of a sense of tradition, because her mother did it to her, teach me some of these prayers. And I remember uh, memorizing, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk, want, you know, e even before I had any idea what it was, those words were going into my mind. So poetry, prayers, scripture, songs, are all building language skills. Um, as you get into a child who is showing a readiness for reading, you want to look for a good phonics program. Um, you know, the, the jury is in and has been for decades that equipping children with phonetic knowledge, phonics knowledge of letters and the sounds they make and the combination of letters and the sounds they make will give children a faster track to independent reading than you know the whole language or the look say or the sight word approach. But I would point out, especially in primary and elementary grades, that you want to supplement the teaching of reading and simple books 
with audiobooks because children can listen to audiobooks. They can listen to you read out loud to them at a level way above their own decoding. And so what does that do? Well, again, listening, or I, I would call it reading with your ears, right? You could read with your eyes. If you're blind, yeah. you might learn to read with your fingers, but you can read with your ears. And in doing that through listening to people read out loud and supplementing that with audiobooks, again, it builds the vocabulary, builds the syntax, it develops comprehension, and it's a joy. And um, kids can actually listen to audiobooks while they're doing other things like chores or building stuff or playing or drawing pictures or whatever. So um, uh, I have seen, you know, so many, you know, kids seven, eight years old who know all sorts of literature can tell you all about Treasure Island. Um, they couldn't have ever read that with their eyes at that age unless they were really exceptional, but they can hear the story and follow it and enjoy it and enter into it and be blessed by that. Then with writing, of course, you're dealing with um, everything from letter formation into simple copy work and into spelling, and then you move into composition. Now with letter formation, this is an area that a lot of parents are not as careful as I think they could and should be to benefit their children. And that is, do you remember those like, alphabet strips that would be on the wall in the classroom or taped yes. onto the desk. And they'd have a little arrow with a little number, like do this one first and yes. do this one next. And that proper stroke order and letter formation is hugely beneficial. So if you let a child just kind of copy a letter however they want to, and they get a bad habit when they write a D or an R or some kind of letter, and that's not corrected at an early age, it becomes a significant handicap in terms of speed and fluency of putting words on paper later on. So attending to proper letter formation and then just copying. Uh, sadly, this is another thing the modern schools have kind of thrown out, baby with the bathwater. Oh, <laughs> memorization and copy work. It's boring, it's tedious, it's rote learning, it's not creative, let's eliminate it from the primary curriculum. And yet, you know, you and I know children are wired for imitation. And so when they, you know, memorize, they're imitating learning language. When they copy, you know, whether you want to do, you know, a simple little paragraph from a story or, uh, you know, a scripture for the day or a scripture for the week. I've watched my eight-year-old grandson learn how to spell all sorts of words that he never would have known how to spell simply because his mother has him copy a couple of verses from scripture every day for a month. And so, you know, basically after a couple of weeks, he doesn't really even need to copy it. He can write it out from memory and then just check himself against the original. And by the end of the month, he can say it, he can read it, he can write it. And so copy work is a very integrating activity. And I'm so sad that teachers in schools have kind of been brainwashed that this is not a good use of time in grade one or two, because it's a hugely valuable uh, use of time. And you know, to the degree that copy work helps with spelling, 
Also, you may want to get a spelling program that is based on the phonics for decoding. And the other thing I'll mention is if you have a very dyslexic child like my son, um, there's no way he would do spelling on paper at eight or nine or even 10 years old. Um, but he did learn to spell um, dozens, if not hundreds of words verbally. Mm -hmm. And so I had him practice and drill and hear a word and learn how to say the letters that make the word and do that again and again and again and again, and then work in small categories of words that are similar so that he knows, okay, that's a, you know, that's a vowel with an E on the end that makes it say its name. So we work on a bunch of words like that, you know, lake and bake and shake and quake and rake and that whole category. So he's got part of it consistent, just repetitive, and then the movable parts to change the word, the consonants, he can intuit those and say them. So this idea of verbal spelling practice is hugely valuable in preparation for a more formal, say written spelling test type of approach that would be done on paper. That's a lot, that's good. And I love the read aloud, also the copy work. Those are things that I just think they've gotten rid of. Read aloud. The first year I would read aloud after lunch and I'd fall asleep and I thought, oh, this is a bad, I'm not uh, being a good model because I'd love to read out loud. So we made it first of the day. And from then on, the rest of the 10 years we homeschooled, we started, that was what we did first thing because I knew it would get done if I did it first thing in the morning. So, and we, we read aloud till high school, you know, it, we never stop and the relationships are great, but. And, and I don't know if it's okay, but I'd like to mention my good friend, Sarah McKenzie. Yes. And her read aloud revival um, is a wonderful website. Um, and she's got all sorts of tips and book recommendations and encouragement. There's like a whole massive community now of parents that are kind of on board with this, let's read aloud to the kids first thing in the morning. Um, even parents who are not homeschooling are discovering the joy and the benefits of reading out loud to their children, regardless of age. Wow. I know, because I think parents think, well, as soon as they read on their own, then we'll quit reading out loud because they don't need me. And I'm just like, but like you said, yeah, but you can always read on a higher level than their ability to decode. And so, and plus, we just enjoyed reading together. We would read aloud at night too. Steve would read out loud to them, but the morning time was very, it was scheduled and we never skipped it. So Anyway, it's, it's a way to build culture and common shared experience in the home, too. So if you're reading a book like what Little House on the Prairie or something, and then something happens in your home, someone will go, oh, that's just like what happened to Laura, you know, and, and everyone can relate to it. And, and it brings focus and commonality to experience. So, yes, never stop reading out loud to all of your children, even when they're teenagers. That's so true. We had that experience with little britches. We were in the car one time and the kids were talking about that crotchety old grandpa and how they are so glad their own grandpa wasn't like him. I mean, this was out of the blue. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's really seeping into their soul. Like they're really getting what's going on. So anyway, well, let's move on up. Um, I don't know if you want to go to elementary or middle school or you tell me. Well, we can talk about middle school because there's some, you know, primary and elementary, you're kind of doing the same thing. Okay. 
just gradually increasing the sophistication um, and the attention span and all that. In middle school, uh, and you know, for some kids that's a little younger, older, I, I don't like grade levels per se, uh, but you have to somehow talk about these stages of development, even though they're not uh, you know, absolutely fixed to age. Um, but one of the things that uh, kids start to be able to do in terms of um, improving their listening is to be starting to take notes from things that they're listening to. Um, now, you know, I don't remember whether I had a class when I was in junior high school where I was supposed to take notes or not. I don't, I specifically don't remember anyone ever teaching me how to do that. And then somehow you flounder your way through high school and college and you do take notes. But there's actually ways to teach this. And I think middle school is a great time. And if you're homeschooling, um, it, the best opportunity is when you're listening to something other than mom. Uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, going to church is a great opportunity, usually here sermons or homilies and uh, if a child is encouraged to take notes from a sermon then uh, reconstruct some of what they may have heard in that process of listening and taking notes the, the act of writing something down while you're hearing it promotes a sustained attentiveness you're you're less likely to get distracted mentally or physically, you're more likely to remember something that you write down than if you don't. And uh, also, you know, sometimes I know homeschool parents will take kids to meetings or conventions and somebody is doing a little talk or maybe even online talks like this one or appropriate short little, you know, TED Talks or YouTube Talks, um, lectures that you may get as part of a history curriculum. Uh, so looking for chances for middle schoolers to practice their note-taking skills. And if you have a student who is using our um, structure and style in writing program, then we work with keyword outlines to uh, help kids write better. Uh, it's a very easy shift to keyword note-taking. So they don't try to write down a whole sentence. They just try to write down two or three words that would help them recall the idea of a whole sentence. This allows them to keep up, keep up better and um, stay more attentive and then possibly even refer back to or use that information later on. So that's one uh, way of expanding listening. I also strongly recommend uh, that you continue audiobooks and reading out loud at, you said, the level above their own decoding skills. With speaking, this is the age when kids are more likely to be interested in um, contests or uh, opportunities for recitation. So if you memorize some poems, it's nice to be able to have someone to recite those poems for. In fact, uh, one of the sweetest stories I ever heard was uh, a mom uh, drove a long ways to talk to me. And I said, you shouldn't have driven that far to just talk to me, <laughs> called me. She said, no, I just wanted to tell you in person, my son's been memorizing a lot of poetry from your poetry memorization program that we publish. And his favorite thing to do, he's 11 years old kid, his favorite thing to do 
is to go to assisted care facilities and retirement homes and wow. recite poetry wow. for his great grandfather and other people who live there. And, you know, that just touched my that heart. That's awesome. Uh, and all the poems in my program are all really old because I didn't want to pay any royalties to anybody. <laughs> so they're all public domain. These are the poems that 80 year olds had learned when they were in school 70 yeah. years ago. Uh, another thing that uh, is sometimes very motivating for middle school age kids uh, are contests uh, like 4-H has um, speech competitions. Um, poetry Out Loud is a national poetry recitation competition. Uh, national History Day uh, has you can enter and make write an essay or create a website or you can do a dramatic presentation. Uh, certain homeschool co-ops or groups like uh, Classical Conversations will have presentation days or uh, end of the year where they'll take a famous person, uh, write a little essay, turn that into a speech, memorize the speech through note-taking, and then deliver the speech in costume as a you know person from history. Uh, and so that's very, very, so lots of kind of more formal ways to practice uh, public speaking through uh, memorized uh, or even sometimes impromptu types of debates. Um, with reading, now here's an idea a lot of parents might not think of, but I know the value. And that's not just encouraging your middle students to read, you know, not just the drivel that's written for young people, but more classic literature. But in addition to that, also having them learn to read out loud well. So oral reading. This is something, again, schools don't do. They don't have time for. They don't want to put kids on the spot. They don't want to single anyone out. They don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. So they just don't do it. But reading out loud is a developable skill. And one way in the homeschool that we did it was once the kids were old enough, we would put on kind of their daily checklist of stuff they had to do, read out loud to a younger sibling for 20 minutes. Wow. And so they would have to go find a book on the bookshelf, you know, generally a picture book, and they would have to spend a certain amount of time reading picture books to younger siblings. Now, this kind of broke down. All my kids were about three years apart. So it worked pretty well until the two youngest, when I had a nine-year-old son who really couldn't read anything at all, and a six-year-old younger sister who could read anything at all. And you couldn't really say, read to your older brother. That just didn't go very well. So with him, as he started to be able to read better around 11 years old, um, rather than have him read to a sibling, I pulled the dad do the dishes trick. So um, whenever it was his turn to do evening chores and he had dishes, which is the one everybody would hate, but it's your week, blah, blah. I would say, okay, son, tell you what, you got dishes this week. I'll read to you while you do the dishes. Or if you prefer, you can read to me and I'll do the dishes for you. <laughs> and, oh, this was great because he'd always take the deal. And then I would just wash the dishes very slowly, <laughs> enjoying. And, you know, it was tough because he would stumble a lot being so dyslexic. But even he, in his extreme dyslexia, by the age of 13 or 14, was a good 
oral reader. And that served him very well when he got into speech and debate. And of course, I'm particularly happy to think that all of my children uh, will be very comfortable and happy to read well out loud to all of their children. Mm -hmm. So that's something you know to start thinking about. And then of course, middle school is really the time when writing can just take off. You know, uh, an 11 year old is, is smart enough to have sophisticated ideas and engage intellectually, but young enough to still play with the idea of writing and be imaginative and kind of free, freely creative. So um, again, you, you know, there are lots of writing programs out there. Uh, I know, Carrie, you have recommendations. Uh, we have our approach called structure and style uh, in writing, and it's a great system, especially for reluctant writers. And so, uh, you know, please feel free to check that out. But I would say, you know, middle school is that age when you really can maximize the progress uh, mm -hmm. of writing because you've got the time you've got the exploding intellect and you still got the, you know, the kid who can have fun with stuff pretty easily. I also uh, strongly suggest grammar. Um, you know, you don't wanna push grammar too young. I don't think you wanna be trying to force grammar worksheets on a seven or eight year old, but certainly upper elementary middle school, uh, having a good daily practice of uh, identifying parts of speech, understanding phrases and clauses, being able to proofread for mechanics, all of these skills. And again, there are lots of grammar programs. I happen to like ours the best. It's called, <laughs> it's called Fix It. Uh, and it's a very fun, you know, one or two sentences a day maximum. It's more like a game than a chore, uh, but that's well. And one last thing I would mention for the teaching of language skills in middle school is logic, mm -hmm. right? If uh, a lot of people follow the classical model, so they kind of equate grammar with younger children and logic with the middle school. I don't, you know, live in that idea entirely, but there is some validity to saying, hey, when they hit about 11, 12 years old, they are going to argue. They are going to argue with you whether you like it or not. They are going to wake up in the morning and look for someone to argue with. That's what they're wired to do. So if they're wired to argue, teach them to do it well. Teach logic, get a book that says logic on the cover and work through that in the middle school and equip them with some of the tools for being able to think and speak and write in syllogisms and detect fallacies in their own and other people's arguments. And it's a lot of fun to teach logic to kids. We don't publish a logic curriculum, uh, but there are many good ones, uh, Classical Academic Press, Memoria Press, and uh, you know there are others. I'm sure you've got resources um, on, on your website and, and available. But uh, people don't normally think of logic as a part of the teaching of writing. But really, it is, isn't it? Because when you read yes. something that doesn't have good logic, it's pretty painful. <laughs> it is. And that's so true about kids. That's what I'm like, when they're 12 years old, they want to argue. So you might as well teach them the right way to argue. So yeah. anyway, thank you so much. Well, what about with um, high schoolers? And I think sometimes moms are sort of scared because they feel like maybe they're just not good enough to do that. But what would you say? You can talk about moms in a second, but what about high schoolers? Yeah, you know, I think that 
high school in a way is the worst of school in that it disintegrates subject matter. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you take a class, you have a teacher in English, and then you take a class and you oh. have a teacher for history or government, and you have a different class, a different book, and a different teacher. And some of these times, these teachers don't even ever talk to each other. There's no plan for integrating skills. But I would say that's what teenagers most benefit from is when they start to integrate the things that they know and can do in a meaningful way. So I would view high school as, you know, optimally this period of integration of the arts of language with meaningful activity. So let me give, uh, you know, a few ideas along those lines. First thing I just loved and five of my seven children Four of my seven children all did uh, several years of formal competitive speech and debate. Oh, wow. Uh, this is readily available in the homeschool world. There are two large leagues, the NCFCA, which stands for National Christian Forensics and Communication Association. And then there's another large league called STOA, S-T-O-A, which is not an acronym. It's just a Greek word that means place in front of a building where people would stand around and debate stuff. Uh, so NCFCA and STOA uh, are readily available to all homeschoolers in almost every geographic area. And I'll tell you, with the, you know, with the COVID year, everything went online. And that actually expanded the opportunity for kids to participate in speech and debate because they didn't have to necessarily, you know, drive four hours to a tournament or whatever. And when you think about it, to, to engage in, in a policy debate or a values debate, it's very structured. There's a specific way you do it, but you have to listen well to your opponents. You have to take notes. You have to know what they said so you know what to say. You have to speak, you know, you have to be on your toes and speak impromptu. Uh, you have to learn to ask good questions in cross-examination. Uh, reading, you have to read well the evidence, both in preparation for the debate as well as cold reading out loud from your evidence card in the middle of a round. And of course, you've got to be writing your cases and your negative briefs and all this. So if you really want to integrate listening, speaking, reading, and writing at the highest level, things like speech and debate and mock trial are the ultimate way to do that. And I think all four of the children who chose to do that in high school would look back and say, yes, that was one of the most valuable things that I did as a kid. Wow. Um, continuing the study of logic and then rhetoric, formal rhetoric, if you're into kind of the classical mode, and then also uh, creating opportunities for a Socratic discussion about literature or current ideas. Um, and when we say Socratic, that means kind of question-driven conversation. And this, I think, happens best with teenagers in small groups. Mm -hmm. So to have a, a group of four or five, maybe six teenagers uh, reading something and talking about it 
and uh, being able to have a facilitator of the conversation. I think you know that we have for many years uh, sold a course by Adam Andrews called uh, Teaching the Classics. And this is so helpful for parents or mentors or teachers who want to facilitate good uh, discussion in that way. A third thing would be drama. Um, you know, some people say, you know, drama is the capstone of rhetoric because it includes the cultivation of memory. It, it, you practice, um, you know, being able to know something so well, you don't have to try to remember. And then you can think about the nuanced delivery of those lines or even musical theater and working together with other people and entertaining, you know, uh, other people from grandparents to little siblings. Um, so uh, again, um, five of my seven children all grew up having the opportunity to be in musical theater productions once a year. And even though it was just once a year, but you do, when you're a little kid and you do something three times once a year for three years, you now know that. And you go into adulthood with this confidence, this experience, this poise in front of an audience. And that's a valuable skill to have. Um, a fourth thing that I recommend um, would be dual enrollment and high school homeschool kids starting to take college classes. This can be done either online through a school like Liberty University, which has a huge online dual enrollment program going, or at a local community college. Most homeschool kids that I meet who are about 15 years old, who can read, basically, who can know basic math facts, they know their multiplication tables and they've done a little bit of algebra and can write half decently, can walk into any college class and do quite well because a few things. Number one, <laughs> the quality of the average 18-year-old, 19-year-old in college classes has declined significantly. And number two, the homeschool student is used to working a little more independently, taking a little more initiative, getting help from mom or dad when they need it, but, you know, being able to operate in a more socially diverse environment. So the great thing about dual enrollment is you can basically say, hey, go take a, an English class at the junior college, and that counts as high school credit if you need a high school diploma someday. And it counts as a transferable credit if you go off to university. I know any number of kids who finished high school as homeschoolers with the equivalent or an associate of arts degree. I even know homeschoolers who had their bachelor's degree by the age of 19 because they started at 15. And that's a great way to save a whole lot of money or avoid getting into debt because as you and I know, going off to a college or university right now, even a public school, even a state university um, is very, very expensive. Uh, so dual enrollment. And then of course, uh, you look at community involvement, um, high schoolers working in internships, uh, working on political campaigns, local political campaigns, that can be a great opportunity. Um, getting involved in volunteer activities, mission strips, really any time when uh, teenagers have the opportunity to interact with adults in, an, in a meaningful 
circumstance, that's the absolute best way for them to operate at their highest level of social language, intellect, all of that. It's going to bring them up to their highest possible uh, functioning level of listening, speaking, and reading, writing like an adult. And an extension off that is once you know something, if you're 16 or 17 and you know something or love something, you can start teaching classes for younger homeschooled children, 9, 10, 11 years old. And that's a great way to make some money as a teenager. It's a great way to learn whether you like teaching, how to relate with children outside your age range even better. Uh, and in some cases, you know, is a super blessing to the moms who would be really, really happy for a very competent 17-year-old homeschooled kid to teach a writing class that includes her 10-year-old daughter, you know. Uh, and then the last thing I mentioned, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is the, the benefits of a home business or a family business or a teenager starting a business. Because if you want to have to listen, speak, read, and write at your absolute best level, well, think about starting a business. It's going to require all of those skills uh, being polished on a daily basis. So those are th some thoughts about integrating arts of language in high school. Well, and I appreciate it that you, you shared so many ideas that I think most homeschool moms would not even think of are part of language. And yet those are all like real life things. And um, we want to separate it, like you said at the beginning. Okay, they have an English class and they've got a speech class or whatever. And it really does need to be integrated in all areas. Well, I know some moms... I was not a language person. I was a math person growing up. So when, although I taught writing in fifth grade and all that stuff, but, um, and I feel like God sort of brought me along in speaking and reading and writing and all that. Cause I didn't even like to read as a kid. It really wasn't until I was an adult. I know some moms might want to improve their language skills. Do you have any suggestions for them? Uh, well, you can do exactly what you might do with kids, which is read a lot, um, listen to good language, listen to audiobooks yourself, listen to articulate people on podcasts of things that interest you, like Carrie Beck and Homeschool Heroes. <laughs> um, you know, it's never too late to memorize. Um, I've kind of had a, since I quit teaching Latin, I realized I'm getting a little intellectually soft. So I've recently taken on uh, a program of spending, you know, a certain number of minutes every day trying to maintain and increase my repertoire of memorized stuff. So you're, it's never too late to memorize and you always can learn new words that way. Um, but really, I mean, the best way to learn anything is to teach it. So as you start all these things we've mentioned, or some of them, and your kids grow and the sophistication, the sophistication of that grows as they get older, you know, you're going to end up improving your own language skills. And, you know, it's interesting in our writing seminar, I will always make parents, okay, stop the video. Now write this paragraph. And they're not used to that. It's for some parents, it's been years or even decades since they actually had to do that kind of thing. And they almost always say, wow, this is harder than I thought it would be. It gives them empathy for their students. And so to the degree that you can do some of the assignments that your kids are getting, you will learn a lot in the process. And I think a lot of us 
when we first looked at homeschooling, you know, there were a lot of motivations. We love our kids, want to keep them home. We don't like the options for school. You know, we have moral or religious values that aren't going to be reinforced unless we do this. But one of the secret reasons, I think, is that many of us thought, aha, if I homeschool my kids, I might be able to get the education I never got. <laughs> That's true. So, well, I know my education grew tremendously as a homeschool mom. I mean, I learned so much stuff that I never learned. My nephew, who has a little one-year-old, said, well, we're not sending them to public school because I didn't learn anything in public school. And he's a really smart kid, you know, but still. Well, you have covered so much, and we have really zipped through everything. Um, you've mentioned some resources. Are there any resources? I know you have IEW.com. Are there any that you would like to highlight for them? Um, well, we have podcasts, um, 250 or more podcasts on various subjects. Um, in fact, you know, I've, I've taken a whole podcast just to talk about reading, another whole one just, or one about listening, one about speaking, one about reading, one about writing. So that can be unpacked a little more. Uh, dyslexic, I mean, a lot of parents have kids that are mildly or not so mildly dyslexic or dysgraphic. Maybe they have um, attention issues or spectrum. I have a lot of resources for special ed type of, I think it's idb.com slash SPED, um, but you know you can search that. Uh, I have a book of my collected essays written called However Imperfectly. And then of course, uh, conference talks that are recorded and uh, a whole lot of curriculum uh, that can be purchased, but visit IEW.com and there's a lot of free stuff there that uh, I think would be very encouraging. And then if you have any questions, uh, you can chat or call or email our uh, excellent customer service team and we will help you wherever you are. If you're brand new to homeschooling because of the pandemic year uh, and you're thinking, gosh, you know, I, I had my kids home. I think I'm going to keep them home this coming year, but I really don't know what to do. You know, we've got people who can who can also help in this whole area of the arts of language. So that's great. And I will say they have something for everyone. When we started teaching writing structure and style, I don't even know if that's the correct name anymore, but um, that's the basis of everything. And that changed my whole approach to teaching writing. And I feel like it gave my kids confidence in their writing. And we use that over and over. And then as they had more products, we would use those more products as well. The poetry memorization, I just have to say this before we close. Do you still have the little worm poem? Yes, it's the first poem yes. in the whole selection of a hundred selections. And they're all recorded. It's like a Suzuki method for memorizing poetry. It's like with violin, you start with twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yeah. Everybody does. Everyone starts with ooey gooey was a worm. A mighty worm was he. He stepped upon the railroad tracks. The train he did not see. Ooey gooey. Oh, man. <laughs> and I've seen two-year-olds memorize this poem. Crazy. I think I'm gonna pull that out with my grandkids because we, my kids did, and we all started with, no matter how old they were, we started with the ooey gooey worm and they just laughed about it and everything. So that's a great, you've said memorization the whole time and I just wanna make sure people know that's out there. So was well, there anything in closing you'd like to share with the, our viewers? Um, just, you know, we have, um, you reminded me that we have a link to 
free lessons for poetry, grammar, and writing. And so if you go to iw.com slash free hyphen poetry, free hyphen grammar, free hyphen writing, you can get um, three weeks of our newest writing course, Structure and Style for Students, uh, level A, B, or C. You can get three weeks of our Fix-It Grammar, and you get level one of the Poetry Memorization Program, okay. 20 poems and the recordings for everything. So we really want people to have a chance to try out our stuff before spending a dime. And so, you know, that's the way I would uh, encourage people to go. And then just, you know, be aware that there's a thousand good things that you can do and you will never do all of them. And sometimes a good thing can be the enemy of the best, right? If you're doing one thing, you can't be doing another. So as you're sorting through navigating the world of curriculum and how to spend your time and different grade levels and different goals that you have for different children, um, you know, don't feel like you have to do every good thing. Uh, understand that if you find the the one best thing, that will go a whole lot farther in the long run. And it's easy to kind of get caught up in, oh no, there's so much I have to do. Um, there's a saying in Latin, multum imparvum, there's more in less. Mm -hmm. So to do less and to do it well, to do it more is actually going to gain you a whole lot more in the long run than trying to kind of be like a school and do a little bit of everything about everything. That's excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I know Andrea has shared a lot of links. We will have right underneath this is, um, I may even make a little handout with the, the links on there so they can click them and be able to get to them. And if not, we'll put it in the very first comment so that you people can just look right below where you're watching us and there's comments and we can put a little PDF there as well. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much, Andrew. Thank you, Carrie. It's great to see you out there on the front lines, helping everyone. Okay, well, I'm Carrie Beck with Homeschool Superheroes. Thanks for spending time with us today.